Thanks so much, Karen. Uh, it's so good to be together and to be able to worship our Lord together, isn't it? It is such a privilege. Let's turn to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And uh, so we've been working our way through 2 Corinthians for quite a little while. This morning, to let you know, we're coming to the final section of 2 Corinthians. The last four chapters are uh, not only a final section, but a very distinct turning point in Paul's writing. It, it marks a significant shift in Paul's tone, and probably not in the way that we might expect at this point in the letter. In fact, it's a little surprising. If you remember, Paul devoted much of his first six chapters of this letter to defending his ministry to false apostles. Wherever Paul planted a church, there were people who followed him to try to steal disciples away and preach false, uh, false gospels. So this was no uh, different at all. And so he devoted most of his first six chapters to defending his ministry to these false apostles and trying to call the hearts of the Corinthians to himself. And then if you remember in chapter 7, Titus comes to him with the good news that the church is strongly behind him. They love him. They support him. They're praying for him. They're longing to see him. And Paul breathes a sigh of relief. And then he goes into kind of, uh, you know, talking about, um, you know, that reunion together, opening their hearts to each other. Chapter 8 and 9 is all about living larger through generosity, being faithful. And we think that this defense is over, but beginning in chapter 10, Paul resumes his defense of his apostleship and with a, a greater intensity than he had before. In fact, Paul begins to, to have this personal, extremely raw section where Paul doesn't even really sound like Paul in many of these chapters. And we might wonder why. Why? I thought we kind of moving on here a little bit. Well, I think the answer with this, and we'll see it as we walk through these chapters, is that first of all, the false apostles are still there in the church. They didn't leave. They're still there. And while the majority of the church is strongly supportive and, and behind Paul, there is a faction of people who are not, who are listening to these voices, who are aligning themselves with these false apostles and are working to continue to drive a wedge in Paul's ministry and to undermine his credibility. In a sense, they've declared war on Paul's ministry. And the weapon of choice, as we'll see, is criticism. Criticism. So here's what's happens. And starting in chapter 10, just so we kind of have a sense, Paul has had enough of the criticism and he confronts the critics head on. And so in these last chapters, to do a flyover, Paul will mock them sarcastically. Paul will warn. Paul will threaten. Paul will reluctantly, painfully boast about the superiority of his apostleship over these false apostles, the superiority of his qualifications over them. It's painful. It gets painful. You can hear the pain in his voice. 
Paul pulls back the covers. Up until now, it's kind of been vague. He's going to pull back the covers and say, these, these apostles, these super apostles are actually servants of Satan masquerading as servants of Christ. The gloves are off, starting in chapter 10. So let's read verses 1 through 11. And then let's pray. Paul writes this, By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be toward some people, file that away, who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. You are judging by appearances. If anyone is confident that they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. So even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than tearing you down, I will not be ashamed of it. I do not want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters. For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Such people should realize that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. Father, we come to your word. And Lord, we want to soak it in. We want to hear. Lord, we know Paul wrote this. But deeper than that, we know you wrote this. This is the very word of God. So may we receive this morning. And Lord, I pray that it's not just the words, but your spirit will help apply them and bring them and pierce our hearts and penetrate our thoughts with, these, with this truth and this word. We just commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Criticism is a lot like fire. In the right place, in the right boundaries, it is very helpful. Constructive criticism is a good thing. We need it. We need it. Constructive criticism is offered from a heart of care that wants to help someone grow, improve, do better. But the desire is to help someone. That's constructive criticism. Destructive criticism like fire outside of its boundaries can do great damage and create great destruction. Destructive criticism isn't given to help. It isn't, the purpose of it isn't to improve. 
the purpose of destructive criticism is aimed to tear something down, someone down, to do damage to them, to undercut them, to destroy them. That kind of criticism is toxic. It's toxic to a person's life. It's toxic to relationships. It's toxic to a church. Now, this faction in this church, what Paul refers to as some people, some people, we don't know how many, we don't know the number of them, but this faction in verse uh, uh, that we see in the church is not offering constructive criticism. They are seeking to tear Paul down with toxic criticism. Now, it, there's a really good chance they never anticipated Paul to hear back the criticisms. Toxic, one of the things about toxic criticism is it often wants everybody to hear it except the person that's being criticized. Have you ever experienced that? You know, you've got 20 people, one person is involved, 19 hear about it. The one person involved doesn't actually ever get face-to-face time. So they don't expect probably for Paul to hear about it. Paul hears the criticism. It gets back to him. And in verse 1, he begins to sarcastically echo back to them the criticisms that they are bringing to Paul. Look at verse 1 again. Maybe it struck you as a little surprising. Paul says, I, Paul, I'm writing this. I, Paul, who am timid with you when face to face, but bold towards you when I'm away. That's the criticism. That's what they're spreading. Paul is a wimp. When he is away, he talks tough. When he's with you, he is a wallflower. He says one thing behind your back and another thing to your face. He's a lion when he's at a safe distance. He's a lamb when he's right there in front of you. Listen, if this criticism were true of Paul, it would be serious indeed. It would, it would undercut his credibility. You could not trust a leader who says one thing in front of you and another thing behind your back. You could, you could never trust that. You can't trust a leader who will talk tough about you but never talk tough to you. So if this were true about Paul, it would seriously undercut his credibility as a leader. But they're not done. We see their second and third criticisms have to do with his appearance and his charisma. Verse 7, Paul writes to them, you are judging by appearances, or some translations, you are looking at the outward appearance. Jumping down to verse 10, for some say, His letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive, and his speaking amounts to nothing. They are criticizing him for his appearance and his lack of eloquence. By all accounts, Paul was not a great-looking guy. I'm not going to read one of the descriptions, but it almost makes him sound like Quasimodo with a Bible. I mean, it's just, it's not a flattering description of his physical appearance. These people valued striking, imposing, good-looking appearance. That was a part of the package for them to believe you were a 
powerful instrument of God. They also highly valued, the group might have been the sophists, but they highly valued, and we've looked at this, the wisdom, the eloquence, they loved the turn of a word, they loved powerful speaking, charisma. That was their measuring of the power of a person bringing whatever teaching they're bringing. So they're looking and they're, these super apostles probably had it all together. They're like celebrity pastors coming in, you know, and they're hip and they're cool. Their jeans are cut and they're powerful, charismatic. And, and then they look at Paul and, and, he's, and he admits in chapter 11, I'm not a trained speaker. He's not great looking. And God looks at the inward. But these people very much looked at the outward. And what they're saying is, He's not impressive. He's not worth listening to. I think there can be a tendency in the church today to do this as well. We have, you know, celebrity leaders, celebrity pastors who are, you know, often kind of bring that full package together. They're, they're hip, they're cool, they're good looking, they, they're very charismatic, they're excellent uh, speakers and all that. And all of that is okay. Until we begin to use that as a measurement of whether the anointing of God is upon their ministry, whether God's blessing is upon their ministry. Because we need to look, all of us, at character over charisma. We need to measure by the content of what's brought, the biblical content, not the eloquence of how it's been brought. So, what we have here is criticism being spread throughout the church to undermine Paul's credibility as an apostle. Don't pay attention to him. I want to hit the pause button here for a moment. We're going to come back to Paul's response. But I want to hit the pause for just a moment to talk a little bit about criticism. Specifically, this kind of toxic criticism and I would love to be able to say, you know, people shouldn't do this. People, there are people who have this kind of toxic criticism. But to be honest, I've seen the seeds of that kind of criticism in my very own heart. And maybe you have too. In fact, it's there. It's there. There is within our hearts the seed for being critical. I'm not talking about constructive criticism. And, I, and that is a gift from God when someone loves you enough to bring constructive criticism. I'm talking about critical. And that seed lies in our hearts. The question is whether we water it, whether we fertilize it, or whether we try to kill that thing. Because it's in the heart. I know what that's like to have this thing, this critical spirit that wants to criticize and it and it has these subtle undertones we feel bigger when we make someone else look smaller we we actually get off on cutting someone down a few notches it's toxic it really is we we can become professional critics where we think it's our job to look for what's wrong that's what we're looking for What's wrong? Instead of looking to do what's right. It's 
toxic. It really is. Matt Chandler uh, compared critical people, not constructive criticism, critical people, to referees who attend church like little referees with whistles and flags, and they kind of run along the sideline of the game, blowing whistles and throwing flags on people. You did that wrong. Doop. You did that wrong. That's not right. You're completely wrong. That's horrible. You shouldn't do it that way. And they're not on the field. They're not in the game. They're on the sidelines calling everything they think is wrong. That is really not a healthy place. To be. Let's not be that person. It, it's the potential in our hearts is there. Let's not be that person. One of the things about a critical spirit, and one of the reasons we want to steer clear of it, is a critical spirit might see true things, but it will distort the meaning of those things. It will think it's seeing clearly, and it will not be thinking, seeing clearly. And that's exactly what's going on in this situation. The critics who are nipping and biting and cutting at Paul, they are seeing a reality. They are seeing a truth. They are completely misreading what that reality means. They completely misrecognize, misread what's going on with Paul. What they thought was weakness and timidity in Paul was actually the very reflection of the heart of God in Paul. It was the reflection of the heart of God. So God's heart is powerfully at work in Paul. And God's heart was powerful. God's power was working and God's heart was working in Paul's Ministry, And what we're going to see in these verses is the willingness to fight, the willingness to punish. I mean, Paul is an apostle. I would say the most powerful of the apostles. He did miracles. You know, Peter, Ananias, and Sapphira came, lied to him, and they were like floored by God. It was like over. Paul has a tremendous amount of power. I would not want to mess with Paul, would you? He has tremendous power. And what he's saying to them is, listen, when I come, I will come with the kind of power you are saying I don't have. But I'd prefer not to have to. I'd prefer not to have to. You want bold? I can do bold. You want war? Bring it. But be warned, I don't fight wars the way you fight wars. I don't fight wars with the weapons that you fight wars with. Paul had the power to demolish and the heart to build up. And I want to look at those two things individually. Paul has, he says, divine power to demolish. But demolish what? the strongholds of lies that lies create in our minds. Let's read verses 2 through 5 again. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. 
For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power, listen to this, to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Strongholds, arguments, lies. A.W. Towser once said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. There is no more powerful influence in our lives than what we think and believe. Nothing guides our lives as powerfully, and I'm, I'm not saying over God, but as far as natural guidance, direction, influence in our lives, nothing is more powerful than what we think and believe. The situation you're in is not more powerful than what you believe about the situation you're in. The circumstances you're in are not a bigger factor in guiding your life than how you're relating to it, what you think, what you're believing Jesus said Satan is a liar and the father of lies. Lies are Satan's nature. When he speaks, he lies. Lies are his greatest weapon against our soul. Lies, untruths, errors, heresies, distortions of truth build and become ramparts in our lives, strongholds that are looking to defend their territory from any truth getting in. A lie that gets in our head does not want to give it up, give up their ground easily. They become strongholds. People become bound by the lies they believe. God gave Paul, and through the Holy Spirit and through his word, he gave us the power to demolish strongholds through the word of God. Divine power to demolish strongholds. But that power to demolish strongholds has to be always built on the word of God, the truth of God. We know nothing else of eternal significance to our souls for sure except what the Word of God says. There is nothing of eternal significance to our souls that we know to be true except what the Word of God says. And so this is such an important time for us to build our lives on the Bible, the Scripture. To make sure what we believe lines up as best possible to the Bible. The Bible actually says one of the primary characteristics of the last days will be deception. That will be one of the primary characteristics of the last days. Now listen, deception has been a big part of all of history from the beginning through. So... When it says that in the last days there will be spirits of deceiving, deceiving spirits and deception that take 
tremendous hold. I think it's got to be saying that the deception that's normally at this level is going to go to this level in the last days. The deception is going to become worse in the last days. And by worse, I mean more attractive, better looking. Because the better looking a deception is, the more it deceives us. The more power it has to deceive us. Jesus said it is going to be, the deception is going to be so powerful, so so strong, that if possible, even the elect, even those regenerated by the Spirit of God and born again will be deceived, if it were possible. Thank God it's not possible. But it's going to get this close, Jesus says, because deception will be so powerful in the last days. Jesus also said that there would be a great falling away in the last days, an apostasy within the church where people will abandon their faith. And I think the two are connected because the deception will be so compelling, so beautiful, so attractive that they will be drawn away from the faith in Jesus Christ. And I think to some degree we're seeing that today. It's become fashionable for way too many Christian leaders to deconstruct their faith, to abandon their faith, or to reconstruct their faith into something that has little resemblance to the Bible where they disagree with the Bible's truth about God, they just change it. They just dismiss it. And this is going on today. I was sad to read a few years ago about a a Christian leader that that we knew that we had spent a little bit of time with, didn't know him well, but we spent time with him, and a wonderful guy, and he openly said, I've deconstructed my faith. I've walked away. I'm praying for these people, that people that are walking away from the faith, that that's not the final word. Amen? I'm praying that's not the final word. But it's very serious, and I believe it's coming because people are, are shifting away from the word of God, as their authority and shifting to other things. And those other things are not big, ugly, dark, demonic lies. They're beautiful, brilliant, make sense, attractive lies. Because that's the kind of lie that paints a compelling picture that would draw someone away from Christ. So what we need to do, I believe, is, and I'm talking to us as a church, and I'm talking to the the Christian community, to build our lives even more intentionally upon the word of God. Build our lives on the Bible. Only the Bible has the power to demolish strongholds that lies build in our hearts. Some years ago, I was talking to a, a mother whose uh, adult child was, was leaving the faith and beginning to look in other directions and and going other directions and drift away from the faith. And, and 
I know it's from the heart of a mom, but she decided to kind of cut loose her own moorings and follow him and kind of kind of drift with him into uh, this sea of doubt and questioning and reading other philosophies and all that to be with him through that journey. I think the opposite is needed. I think our kids, I think those people we know who are drifting away from the faith, we need to be all the more anchored to the scriptures, all the more anchored to God's word for their sake as well as ours. Because here's the thing about lies. I'm telling you, he is the father of lies. He ain't good at producing anything good. Satan. So a lie can look brilliant. It can look compelling. It can look like a bright light that we're moving towards. It can, it can be attractive on so many levels. And we think as we start this journey that we're on a new journey into new light and love and new insight and all this. But it's kind of like if you know those old westerns where they used to have facades of the town. You'd walk into the town on, on TV, movies. They'd have sets where the town looked like a great western town, but it was all just the facade. Behind it, there was no building. They were just held up by two-by-fours. So the face of it looked good, but there was no reality behind it. That's the lies of the enemy. The face of it can look good. There is no substance behind it. There is nothing Satan can bring except darkness, death, and deception. That's all he can bring. So no matter how beautiful the lie is and how many years you're like, this is freeing me and this is wonderful, the end destiny is there's nothing of life here. The life, the truth is in God's word. Christ is the rock that never changes, never drifts, never deceives. And young people need to see, they don't need us to drift with them into doubt and wondering and all that. They need an anchor so that when they're being tossed around by the seas and they're wondering, what is life worth and what can I hold on to? They see us and they say, what they're holding on to is a rock. I want it to, not just for our kids, for anybody that we're dealing with. We need to be firmly built on the rock. So, this, this Wednesday we're starting a series that is really born out of a burden for this, that we build our lives on the Bible. We're going to start it Wednesday night, 7 o'clock, built on Bible. And it comes from this burden to see us have a context in the church for Bible study for building our lives on the Bible. Firmly on God's word. But I want to just let you know, because I, I would feel terrible if people came expecting one thing and then were disappointed. Um, this is not going to be we're taking a book of the Bible and then just really unpacking that book of the Bible. That is a wonderful way to study the Bible. In fact, overall, that's preferable, a preferable way to study the Bible. It's what we try to do uh, continuously in the churches, go through Bible, through books like 2 Corinthians. But this is not going to be that. We also need to know how the Bible fits together, how the whole thing, how what we believe about this, about that, why do we believe this, and see how the whole Bible puts together. We need to just not see, examine trees individually we at times need to take a higher view and see the whole forest and how it pulls together. What some call systematic theology. What do we believe about God? What do we believe about Jesus? 
Not just from one verse or one book, but from the whole of Scripture. What do we believe about prophecy? What do we believe about? And you can just fill in the blank. So, Wednesday night, again, this comes from the burden. I hope people can come out to this. We're going to try to live stream it. We're, it's probably going to be a little choppy at first, so bear with us. Um, but that's the burden that this is coming from. And if there's some topic or some question or some issue you'd like us to, to look at, please let me know. So I want us to dive a little deeper into this whole idea of demolishing strongholds uh, next week and lies, uh, because I think it deserves a little more time. But I want us to tie together the, the, the contrast in Paul that he has divine power to demolish strongholds, lies, arguments. But he also has, as he fights this war, the heart of God to build up people. Build up people. Look at me at verse 10. I'm in chapter 10, verse 1. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face, but bold towards you when I went away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. This is a warning. This is a warning. I hope I don't have to be as bold as I need to be towards some people when I come. But listen to how he delivers. Listen, if I were going to deliver a warning, if there were people coming at me and I finally had enough and I roll up my sleeves and say, guys, the gloves are off. Here's how I'm going to introduce myself. I'm going to introduce myself as I'm going to be your worst nightmare, buddy. I'm coming at you. I am going to take you down. You picked the wrong fight. Here's how Paul comes in this. He walks into the saloon and he says, by the humility and the gentleness of Christ, I'm going to war. That's not exactly the most impressive, like frightening way to introduce, you know, a threat, a warning. Don't mess with me. Paul is armed and ready. He's locked and loaded. But his spirit is completely different than what we would expect. When someone criticizes me, there's something that rises up inside of me that wants to do damage. Cut them at their knees. Show them a thing or two. Paul comes in by the humility and gentleness of Christ. Completely different war field. field the battleground is different than what we expect. This is not weakness. This is meekness. This is strength under control. He never loses sight of the heart of God towards the church, but also in this, he's talking to the church, but he's also talking to some people in the church, those who are trying to hurt him. And Paul's heart isn't to demolish them. It is, even the people criticize him, it is to build them up. He will, he will bring Problems to them if they continue, but he'd rather build them up. What they mistook for weakness and humility and hypocrisy was Paul reflecting the patient, long-suffering heart of God. He says in verse 6, and we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience. Yes, Paul, now you're getting it. We're going to be ready to knock some heads together. 
But then he says, once your obedience is complete. In other words, our goal is to punish disobedience. Once you've gotten to the place where you don't need to be punished. We want to get you there. Our heart, we, what we want isn't to punish. Our heart is to build up. We want to help you get obedient to God. That's the heart of God. That's the heart of God. God will punish. But he much prefers to show compassion and mercy. God is reluctant to punish. He is eager to show compassion. He is eager to show mercy. He is eager to build up. He's reluctant to tear down. Verse 8, so even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up, the authority the Lord gave us, he's got tremendous authority. For what? For building you up rather than tearing you down. I, am, I will not be ashamed of it. I do not want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters. And he goes on to say, what I am when I write the letter is what I am when I'm with you. Paul's saying, I am I'm not one way when I'm 100 miles away and another way when I'm with you. I am who I am all the time, wherever I am. And I am an apostle with tremendous authority. And that authority has been given to build you up, not tear you down. And he's talking to a group of people whose hearts are being drawn away by a group of apostles. They call themselves super apostles. And what they are trying to do is get authority in the church to tear down. Toxic criticism tears down. Critics, people looking for ways and things to criticize, may not realize it, but their spirit has become one of tearing down. We can learn from Paul because his spirit is not going to fight the same fire with that fire. If it comes to it, he will, but he'd rather set them free from the strongholds that are holding and blinding their minds. Even critics need to be set free from their critical spirit. I'm going to close with a true story, and then we're done. David Simmons writes about growing up with a very demanding, critical father. Military man, very critical. Nothing he ever did was good enough. One year when he was a young boy, he was given a bicycle, the instructions, and his dad said, you need to put it together. I'm not helping you. He struggled with putting that bike together until he was in tears. He could, not, he could not do it. And finally, his dad stepped in and said, I knew you wouldn't be able to do it. And he built it. In high school, when he played football, he knew that his dad would cut him down at the end of every game. He said most of the kids had butterflies in their stomach before the game. He said, I had butterflies in my stomach after the game because nothing that other team could do could be as brutal to me as my dad's criticism of how I play. After college, David was chosen as the second round pick for the St. Louis Cardinals. 
That was when they were football. Joe Namath was the first pick that year. He was later traded to the New York Jets. When David called his father to tell him the good news, his dad said to him, how does it feel to be second? David began to grow hateful feelings towards his father. And then he came to Christ. And he tried to build bridges of relationship with his dad. He reached out to his father with the love of Christ. He would visit him and he would initiate conversations about his dad and his dad's growing up. And he came to find out his dad's dad, his grandfather, was a very angry lumberjack, tough guy, lightning fuse. He once destroyed his truck with a sledgehammer because it didn't start. And he would beat his son, David's father. And David began to see his dad in a new light. He began to see that how he got where he is, he could have been a lot worse than he was from the upbringing he had. And he said this, by the time his father passed away, he could honestly say they were friends. I don't know whether he came to Christ or not. I don't know. But they had rebuilt a relationship. We don't want to be one of the some people who criticize and tear down others. We want to work actively against that dormant or growing seed. We want to starve it. That critical spirit that is in all of us if we let it grow. But instead, we want to ask God to use us as an instrument of his power to tear down strongholds, but to build up people's lives. And even if possible, those who would tear us down. That's Paul's desire in this war. We're going to see him appeal over and over again to his critics that the some people in Corinth will become his friends again. And more importantly, come back to their faith in the gospel, and in Christ. As we close this morning in prayer, may, may the Lord, maybe there's a relationship you're, is coming to mind. And I just encourage you, fall strong with them. You don't necessarily have to sit under the criticism and just let it happen. But pray for that person. If you're being torn down, pray for be bold, be strong, but be, be building as much as you can. And be forgiving as much as you can. And if you, like me, see the seeds of critical spirit in you, where you, you, you begin to see what's wrong, you point out flaws, it's kind of where your focus goes. Maybe even you begin to feel a little satisfaction that you're somehow bigger when someone else is somehow made smaller. Kill that thing. Kill that thing. It's not going to do you any good. It's not going to do the other person any good. It's not going to do the church any good. We want to kill that thing. So let's, and that's not the heart of God. So let's go to the, our wonderful God and ask him to help us with this. Heavenly Father, through, through Paul's heart, we see your heart. We see your heart, Lord. Over and over again, the Lord, you say that you are slow to wrath and quick to forgive, quick to compassion. And we just thank you so much for your heart, 
we glorify you, Lord. Satan would lie to us and say you're you're cruel, you're you're like that dad demanding, taking a sledgehammer when anybody steps out of line. But we know, we know from the truth of the Word of God that you are you're the judge, you are holy. We walk in the fear of God, but you are a merciful and compassionate God. And when we come penitent to you, you are quick to forgive. When we come to the cross and we lay our sins before you, you are quick to cover them with the blood of Jesus. And we ask you to do that now, Lord. We just bring our sins, particularly, Lord, if we have been critical of people, if we have been finding joy and finding flaws, if we have been thinking bad thoughts, but not going to try to help somebody, help us to repent of that, cleanse us of that, tear down the strongholds, that that creates in our minds and help us Lord to walk in the spirit of God the boldness of God the building up of God we also pray father that our little corner of the world here that we would build on the word of God our lives our thoughts our beliefs and the ministry we that flows from this church would be built firmly on the word of God and nothing else Lord. and we will give you all the praise and glory in Jesus name